Welcome to Beyond the Fail, the podcast where we talk to leaders and entrepreneurs about their biggest business failures. We'll deep dive into how they overcame these setbacks, the lessons they learned from them, all to help you gain valuable insights. Failure is an essential part of the business journey, as well as being the key to success. So we're here to show you how to thrive from it. Dee Ludlow is a serial entrepreneur having had businesses in many sectors, including fashion, food, property, and music. He is a co-founder of 5D Capital Partners, which reportedly has a fund worth over £52 million in management after completing nine business acquisitions in the last two years. Dee is also the host of the 5am podcast. Today, Dee discusses his experiences when he was younger, starting so many different businesses and why they didn't work out. Plus, working with a misaligned business partner and the disastrous consequences that had. This is Beyond the Fail with Dee Ludlow. Dee, welcome. Thank you for being here. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. No, pleasure. I know it's um, really great to hear you, um, have you on. I know you've got a hell of a lot of sort of broad business experience to talk about, so I'm really looking forward to this um, conversation. So, Dee, take us back. How did it kind of all start for you? I think that... I would say I come from a quite entrepreneurial family. Uh, my mum, being a hairdresser, she had her own business, but it was still seeing her, you know, manage the money, turn up and smile on the day she doesn't want to. And then my dad was an IFA. So um, I naturally wanted to go and do something myself. Um, very early on, I did some, you know, basic things like gardening for APs and things like that, which I'd seen quite early on, you could trade your time for money. And then I suppose as you grow, and you learn, you start to realize that that's not how you want to do it long term. I need to find other ways to pay you um, so you can beat the clock. But that's kind of where it started all. Yeah. So how much influence did your parents have on, you know, you becoming an entrepreneur? Do you think it would have happened if they, you know, weren't kind of entrepreneurial themselves or didn't have their own kind of businesses? Definitely helps. I think that, you know, coming from a family where they both had their own businesses, however big or small, it shows you that you have that entrepreneurial flair and you see some of the things that they deal with, um, even, you know, not the root cause, but just on the surface level. And it does, I definitely feel like it helped. And what it did do is give me um, probably the self-belief to just go and do it and, you know, not be scared to fail. Because I feel that, you know, a lot of people that may go down the traditional employment route, um, it's a big step, you know, is um, it's the, it's the unknown. So, I feel because I had seen that already, it was kind of just natural for me to just feel like if I had something that I wanted to do, then I'm just going to try it. If it works out, then cool. If it doesn't, then it, I definitely feel that helps. I think your environment's one of the key things, regardless of where you're at. So if the people around you uh, are like knocking you down, it does become hard because you do have to go against the grain, but it becomes harder if, the, if, if, if you don't have a support network around you. But were they supportive of you, you know, I suppose, having your own entrepreneurial endeavors, because sometimes parents, right, they, they actually want the opposite. They're like, well, I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, but I don't, I definitely don't want that for my, you know, my child, but were they supportive? Yeah. So I think that some of the things that I chose to do, I probably didn't have the support from my dad, but looking back, it was probably because um, he realized they weren't that great, <laughs> great, they, the ideas weren't that good. Um, and I think that as you grow and mature, you start to realize that, a lot of the optimism you get when you first understand there's another way, um, you realize those ideas aren't too good. So looking back, you're probably right. But at the time, I felt that I didn't 
have the support, but that made me more hungry. Like as an individual, I'm quite competitive. So everything that he said you can't do, I just want to go and do it at the ultimate maximum level. But I think on my mum's side, my mum is just a mum where, you know, she's going to support me whether I win or fail. So, yeah, I think that regardless of what I chose, my mum would have been my biggest fan anyway. What were some of those, you know, some of those ideas that you had that actually your dad probably thought they were a bit rubbish and, are you you know, it took you a while to sort of try them out? So I was involved heavily in the music industry um, for a while and my dad was like, you know, you're investing a lot of money, a lot of time into this. The, you know, not saying that you can't make it into that top 1%, but it is very hard. The odds are stacked against you, basically where I was living um, and I was traveling a lot. So I spent a lot of time in London, traveling to the US as well. And um, I probably could have done it better if I took a different route, but um, he, he seen early on, he's like, you just, of course you have to invest time and money into anything that you want to give you a decent payoff. But he just seen that you know, you've been doing this for a long time and you're not really getting nothing back from it, um, especially compared to what you put in. So that was one of them. Um, I was quite um, passionate about basketball when I was younger. And when I was about 15 and a half, I was trying to work my way into like a scholarship to a junior co- junior college in the States. My height was against me and my build, I would say at the time, but managed to get um, an individual that's going to help make that move happen. Told me that I should have gone and spent two years in high school first because he's 18 years old to go to college over there. I really wanted to do it. Um, and that was another thing my dad said that he's like, look, this is what's going to happen. He said, you're going to go over there physically, not going to be able to compete he said these guys have been playing since they're four or five years old. And he basically gave me all the, the, the risks. Um, and to me, you know, being really motivated and optimistic about it because just based on passion, uh, there was sort of the passion lenses on where I was like, nah, none of that matters. I'll work harder than everyone and all the other stuff. Uh, so he didn't support me on that. So I didn't end up going and I ended up actually working for him for, um, I think, two or three years. Um, just learning that side of the business, which I wasn't passionate about because it wasn't the thing that I wanted to do. So, yeah, there's a few things there, but he was always the person that pro- probably brought me back down because I was I've always been like a really big thinker and a dreamer. So it was it's always good to have that person that even though he would push me along on those things, he'd also give me um, a realistic outlook at it as well. But I think it's important to have that person challenge your opinion. Did that frustrate you? Yeah, it did. So I felt that he wa- he wasn't being supportive, but when you grow up yourself, and I've got children myself now, looking back, he always wanted the best for me, and he was just being sensible. Um, at the time when you're younger, like I said, you're not mature enough to make certain decisions. Um, you make decisions that you can't fathom what your life's going to look like in seven to eight years, and you can't also fathom how this decision you make today is going to impact things in seven or eight years. It's hard to see what that looks like when you're 16, 17, 18. Yeah, I would say even up to like 25 years old. You know, some people mature quicker than others, but, you know, let's be fair. There's there's, all, there's always going to be people out there that have done something they, that they regret or there's something that they probably would have took a different pathway if they had the knowledge they have today 10 years ago. And, you know, so it is hard. So it's really important to have that person around you that gets you in tune with your self-awareness to allow you to understand the actual decision you're making or potentially the consequence of the decision that you're making. 
Yeah, I suppose essentially he was acting as a bit of a mentor, right? Because he had obviously had the knowledge that you you didn't from from life experience. And as much as it's always difficult to hear from a family member, I suppose, he was essentially sort of saying as a, a kind of a mentor and an advisor that these things might not work. So it was, would you say that's a fair comment? Yeah, definitely. I feel that, you know, the one thing that he was supportive on was failure in general, because I, I've never been scared to fail. I hate losing. Like I said, I'm really competitive. I've always wanted to win, but he was okay with me failing and going again. You know, failure is just part of it at the end of the day. Like success and failure go hand in hand. So I just thought that, you know, using a basketball term, but just stay on offense all the time. Like at the end of the day, if when I used to play basketball, if you're getting beat, you stay on offense regardless. You always need to be a threat in a game. So same as in this this whole journey, really. You know, I it, it just changes everything. I think you just need to work. You just need to work as hard as possible. And, and it, as soon as you remove this, the fear of failure out of it, like no one really wants to fail. There's always there in the back of your mind. But as soon as you like remove the the fear, the the mass fear of failure, things become a lot easier because you know you can always go again. Because really, all you're doing is you're testing, then you fail, then you learn from your failure, then you improve, and then you go again. And no matter how many times you do it, if you do it right, then you only got to get it right once. So we're always going to go through situations with that feels like, you know, this is the end. But I think that to become super successful, um, you can't be too risk adverse, but you also have to be like obsessively delusional. That's the way I look at it. Like we're, we're at the point where you're so obsessed with what it is, you almost sound like you are delusional, where people are like, this guy is crazy. Like, is this what he wants to do? But then you need to be so good where others then ask, oh, how did he do that? Like, how, how did he possibly pull that off? And I think that you you do that, but you have to be have some sort of obsessiveness attached to it to really want to go and do it, you know, do things when you don't want to do them way of looking at things are you sort of saying that you have because you meant you know you said you were a dreamer yourself um are you saying that everyone who's you know an entrepreneur has to sort of think big and i suppose be very kind of optimistic and where is the line between optimism and, and delusion great question so so i'm really big on self-awareness so i think that um i always used to think when i was younger that financial IQ was the most important thing and the thing that I want to teach my kids. And I think as you grow up and you mature, you realize that emotional IQ is way more important and you need to get that right first before you even consider, you know, the financial uh, intelligence side of things. So when I say delusional, I don't mean delusional to the point where you don't really know what's going on. I mean, obsessively delusional where you have yourself awareness is in tune and you understand what it is you're doing, but you will appear delusional to other people. You know, other people, the way you think, I don't think every entrepreneur needs to think big. I think it's personal preference. I think that it's all going to be down to what it is someone really wants, what someone's risk appetite is, what their time horizon is for it. I think all of those things need to get taken into account because every entrepreneur is different. But I think if you really want to make something really big, that's when I feel that your obsessiveness becomes slightly delusional to the point where you're so, you need to believe it. You need to get it into like your subconscious mind 
like kind of like you tricked yourself into thinking this one huge thing will never happen. And you've heard the stories, you know, of some of the most successful people in the world has hit the, the ultimate peak in their sport business or entertainment industry. And it's a very similar story, all of them. You know, people didn't believe that they was going to do it. People thought they were thinking too big. People thought they worked too hard. They thought they were going to lose everything, or some some of them did multiple times. It's always the same story. You know, none of them have had a smooth sailing trip to the top. And I think that a lot of them do look like they're slightly delusional. Like, you know, you've like I love Kobe Bryant, and you hear some of his stories, where and there's a real cool quote, that um, a guy on a podcast said after Kobe had um, died and he said that Kobe said that I'm going to chase excellence and perfection because both of those, no, most people won't chase those things because they don't have a guarantee attached to it. So just by chasing it, he's already doing more than other people. And I think that, you know, what you hear the stories, he come in, people have come in from a night out and they've been to the club. It's 4.30 in the morning, he's in the lobby wait, going to the gym. And, you know, someone at the peak of their game, he didn't need to do that. But again, it's that obsessiveness, is that, like, you know, perceived delusion where they're like, this guy's crazy, you know, he, he's already hit the peak. Why, why is he doing this? And I think that those sorts of things there is just a, a very normal, frequent story if you start to analyse the way some of the greatest have got to where they've got to. And it depends what you want to do at the end of the day. Some people have a magic number in their mind that's smaller or bigger for different people people are content with different things in life so it's all down to the individual but yeah that's that's the way i look at it no amazing insight there um just wanted to go back because obviously you know there's been quite a lot of basketball chat already but the the um which is great the the stay on offense um you mentioned earlier the quote how do you think because yeah, I just wanted to sort of dive into that a little bit. How how do you think that then relates to being an entrepreneur and being a, a business leader? Because if you stay on offense, you stay, you, you, you're moving forward. So even if you get pushed back, a pushback, you can still flip into moving forward. Because like I said, you learn from your failures. If something goes wrong, as bad as it feels like in that moment, everything changes in time. And one thing I'll say is hope isn't a strategy, you know, that's why when you talked about optimism and delusion, where's the fine line? You know, we all get super optimistic about an idea or plan that we have. And then usually life punches us in the face and we realize that, right, I was probably a little too optimistic. This is going to be a little harder. And it's not that you can't do it, but it is always a little harder, right? But when you when you actually think about, if, if you're consistently in defense, then you're protecting you're, you're reacting. Where if you're on offense, you're trying to be proactive. So I do believe that regardless of what gets thrown at you, you've got to keep moving forward. It's better taking steps forward than steps backwards. And that's another thing is where like, when we talk about goals, like I grew up consistently writing goals, goals, goals. It was always goals. And most of the time, I would say like 70% of my actual goals never get hit and they never tend to, it never usually happens, right? Because you usually have 30% of the goals that, you're probably going to achieve and then you've got 70% that you may achieve or they're like sort of things you just put out into the, and they're more long-term things. So they sit on your goal list, which they should. And then I, I was listening to someone before, this is probably about five years ago and they flipped it and said, people shouldn't set goals. They should set sacrifices. So what are you willing to give up to get a goal? And when I started writing that down, that changed everything for me. That's 70%. It was still wasn't a hundred percent, but that 30% of goals hit ended up probably doubling because 
you start to tie the things that you need to give up and you know you need to sacrifice to get the goal. And then you start to realize what's more important than others because you only have so much time. So when you start going through the list and think, well, I'm going to give this, this, and this up for this one, this and this up for this one, then you start to realize I'm at capacity here. The other ones aren't going to happen anyway because I can't, I don't have the time or resource to give to them. So that really helped me. But again, it's just, yeah, that's why I meant stay on offense. Um, it's just, just the mindset because like, I look at it and think, this is where you start to realize how much you really want something because it's first of all, where, where's your focus on on a um, daily, monthly, weekly basis? You, if you look backwards and think, right, these are the things that I've done over the last week. They're the things you're going to push for because they're the things you've had focus on. But if if the whole thing was like a winner takes all game, they would only go two ways. You'd either wouldn't enter because you'd look at it and be scared of the amount of work that actually needs to go in to to become the winner or you'd work harder than you know you've ever worked before and you probably just become a complete savage because then you 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 it's a self-belief there so i think that's the fine line where when you actually put ultimatums on stuff and you start to realize right what do i actually need to sacrifice to get it you start to think right this is realistic in this time frame because we all do it, you know, especially at the end of the year, we set the goals for the year. Sometimes you smash all of them and, and we're like, why didn't I think bigger? And then sometimes like, okay, that was, that's more of a three to five year goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and you were maybe being optimistic, definitely. I think that's the point about sacrifice is not one I've heard before. So that's great. Um, that's a great sort of lens to frame things under. I think it's essentially it's a prioritization um exercise isn't it and i think talking about goals as well i'm reading um i haven't actually read it before i've heard lots about it and, and heard lots of interviews with him but i'm reading atomic habits by james clear at the moment and he actually talks about not setting goals but actually setting a structure of of habits and a system so you know if you don't achieve your goals you've still got a positive habit system and eventually you will just by pure determination i suppose and marginal gains that so you will eventually get to where you want to get to anyway but maybe not in the time frame that you've kind of set or what was your first sort of early su success in terms of, of business um probably music um you know we we had a few things where one or two of the tours we put together in some good money and i started to realize that you know with leveraging people in general helps affiliate programs help um utilizing other people's networks help and then just in general marketing because when you start a business you, you know yourself i think that is it the earlier you can start a business obviously i'm in in a, a different space now but when you first start a business is i think you learn a lot because you have to wear all the hats because you don't have the money to go and pay people to do it so you have no choice but to wear all the hats and you know, as time goes on, you realize that's not really effective to continue to do long term. But at the start, I think it's really important. So if you're the earlier you start a business and understand that there's different elements of a business and there's a lot that, that you need to consider, I think you start to get a decent um, overall outlook on how business operates. So that's what helped me at the start where I had, I had to not only generate the product or service that was being sold, but then he had to do all the things at the back to take it to market. And obviously things have changed massively now because back then it was like MySpace, Bebo and, you know, MSM Messenger. We really utilized the stuff that we had to hand. So, you know. It was much harder. Yeah, yeah. But I say it's, it's probably a bit of both. Yeah, it's much harder now, I think, because like you can get eyes, there's more eyes on the internet now. 
So you're competing with more people. Um, and it's also easy to take to market now because within seconds, it, it reached out to a lot of people. But back then, um, it was easier to get eyes on you because you only had to be active and you had to be consistent. Whereas because most of it weren't consistent. So we could put things up and based on the amount of engagement you get over a certain period of time, the algorithms were very different back then, but you could get a lot of eyes on stuff quite quickly and you could tap into resources easier. So right now, let's say musicians are trying to get onto radio because anyone can be a musician now because you can get your friend to film a music video or you can go to, you can record in your house and, or on your phone. There's so many different things now. So anyone can do it. You can create a TikTok account. Whereas back then, I think that you could still do similar things, but people was the, the you'd have to go a little bit further on production. Um, but which is crazy when you think because there, there wasn't much resource back then. But if you did focus on your production and what you looked like and how professional you looked, approaching radio and TV was way easier, like way easier, even though. Um, you would think that now, like, you know, even like brands, for instance, you can get into like supermarkets easier. They're more open-minded to working with independents. Um, back then, work with independents was very, it was hard to get in, but it was easy to speak to them just because the competition was less because most people didn't think you could do it. So I think that's probably one of my earliest successes. But um, I tried a lot of things when I was younger, um, like from 18 to probably like 23, uh, I was... It was chaos. I tried so many things. I thought something's got to work. And I was just involved in anything. If someone locally had an idea where, like little things, someone would go, right, there's a, there's a smashed up carp sale up there. I can get the parts over there. I'd be like, right, let's do it. I'll, I'll, let's all chip in. We'll do this. Then there'd be another thing. My friend would be like, I got these tracksuits for sale. We'd sell the tracksuits. No matter what it is, my friend, I'm starting a gym. Okay, let's get some equipment. It was, there was so many different things that happened. And because the people knew that, I was like a big thinker in my friendship circle. They'd come to me and be like, should we do this? And I just used to try everything. And I think that naturally I built a lot of business acumen that I have today from a lot of experience from things that I did wrong because I jumped the gun too quickly. So looking back, it was, it was all good practice. <laughs> no, I, I, and I'm wondering whether that came from, I mean, you said that your parents instilled in you a, a mantra, I suppose, an approach of not being scared to fail. So obviously, by the sounds of things, you weren't scared to fail because you just basically tried whatever came into your path. Is that is that where that came from, do you think? Yeah, definitely, just pure relentless. Like, you know, my mum as well, because my, my dad was more strategic, but my mum was just work ethic, just true hard work. You know, I remember... You know, you go through personal situations and some people, you know, it affects them differently. But my mum would, no matter, no matter what's going on in her life, she'd still turn up, smile to every customer. People wouldn't know anything, you know. And I think that as such a strong individual to be able to turn up, smile regardless and leave everything else at home. I think, you know, for me to see that, like, and just power on, you know, I that's that's just relentless and i think that i took a lot from that as well and just pure hard work i realized that my dad will work smart my mum would work hard and i think that parents do what they believe the best they can for their children whether that's right or wrong i think as a child i think it's our responsibility then to take both values and both opinions and then form them into what's good so you take 
all the things you think that your dad, your mum and dad done best, and then you you take those values on, and all the things you think they didn't do too well, then you leave them behind or you learn from them. So I think that for me, it was seeing how my dad worked from being smart, like in a more of a smart way, and my mum working really, really hard. I took both of those and thought, let me, you know, you need a bit of both. Um, so then I just took that on. And like I said, failure, fail, overall failure wasn't an option to me, but multi, millions of failures on the way I'm not too bothered about. Like, you know, obviously you can be more strategic as you grow and you understand things a little bit better. So you take a different approach to mitigate the risk. But in the early days, you know, fail fast and move on. Cut your losses quick and move on. I think a lot of people hang on to things because they get emotionally attached, which is nothing wrong with that because if you put time and effort, money into something, it is hard to let it go. But the, I think the quicker you cut your losses and understand there's a loss, move on and just learn from it. Just circle back before I touch on that. I'd say, you know, it sounds like you obviously have very inspirational kind of parents and obviously they've given you a lot so that's evident from you know from this conversation already I, you know your mum as you say turning up to work and you know with a smile on her face you know essentially I would sort of see it as a bit of a swan right you know it might you don't know what's going on underneath but you know outwardly it's it's all kind of sunshine and, and you know great customer service that for me that's kind of true resilience yeah definitely and I think it was instilled from young, you know, I think it's as early as you can get a paper. And I think it's like 10. My dad's like, look, the day after my birthday, I think it was my 10th birthday. He's like, we're going down the paper shop. Here's your birthday present. Yeah. And I was like, okay, did that. And then when I was 13, they took me to like a local restaurant and was like, Tuesdays and Thursdays, you're washing dishes on the pot wash. And then literally I did that for like six months. And then my dad's like, I got you another job on the weekend. I was like, what? And he got me a job washing cars on Saturday and Sunday. So I'm like, I'm in school. And then literally Tuesday night and Thursday night is taken up because I'm in work washing dishes. And then I don't have a weekend anymore because I got to go and work washing cars. So it was like, but I back then I hate I hated it. I, I didn't hate it in a way because I was saving for a car. And my dad's like, the earlier you start this, the more you're going to thank yourself later. So he's sort of forcing me to do it and whatever. But looking back, I'm glad he did because you're having the discipline, especially like when you're, 13, 14, 15 years old, and you're going to wash cars in the freezing cold, you don't want to go to work, and all your friends are out playing like that. That yeah, back then I was I was gutted, but looking back, I'm glad I did it because uh it just formed a discipline that I, you know, you don't know you have sometimes. I mean it's classic IFA advice, right? Short term pain, long term gain kind of thing, you know. Save save for your save for your car, you know, earn now and save, you know, save later. Um and earn later. Um yeah, you could see, <laughs> you could see all of the sort of pieces of education seeping through, uh, and um, from your from your parents. So from from the the music kind of business's success, what kind of you know happened then? Was there any other sort of big successes that were a bit of a a kind of launch pad? Yeah, about a couple. I think from there, I did a, about a dozen startups, you know, various different things, whether, well, I say some startups, and then they kind of was like, we bought a supplement shop, we bought um, a barber shop, we bought, but they, they kind of were still in startup mode. So we bought them, but it was more of a case if they already had all the things in there. And at that time, I didn't have a clue about M&A. So it was just like, it looked like a good opportunity to, you know, 
everything's already there so it made sense to do and then them with a with a bunch of other things literally i probably tried everything you can think of in regards to the startup business model of all the startup style businesses um so we had a few good ones we ended up um growing um a couple of barber shops uh, we're going to take it to franchise so he was working with a company to take it to be, to roll out a franchise model. It was called Bojangles British Barber Club. So it was just all about the customer journey and the feel. It was very much Peaky Blinders like, but like ten years before Peaky Blinders, um, and um, oh maybe. <laughs> so it was very much like that, like real British style, like barbershop. Um, and then that was going pretty good. And then uh, my brother got offered an opportunity over um, overseas, and I said, look, we, we still got a bit like about 18 months of work to do before this is franchise ready because you have to show a certain amount of net profit across multiple shops. Um, it was actually three shops that uh, I think it, was, it wasn't massive. It was like 30, 40 grand net profit, but across three shops individually. Um, but I said, we've got about 18 months to make sure this looks right. Uh, and then his opportunity was pretty good. And at the time, I had two other businesses that I was working heavily on. So I was like, look, this could be a good opportunity to sell. Um, so we ended up doing a management buyout there with two of the managers, well, one of the management team, and then we brought someone else in. Um, they partnered together and sold that. So that was a pretty good. Um, and then there, there's been a few things where, you know, quite um, things that I've jumped into with someone on a JV, and then I've managed to flip myself out, and it's just been good timing. So, but from there, then I went into which this was the this was the thing that I ended up I've never really put all my eggs in one basket I've always had a lot of things on the go and it's just the way I like to operate but I almost did put well pretty much 95% of everything into one basket for a venture um it was a meal prep company uh we ended up doing thousands of meals a week we had to loads of people on meal prep and it was doing really good and our overheads were very small because we had it was everything was coming out of a unit um so and then we, all we had was a delivery driver obviously chefs in the kitchen so it was quite and then it was just basically down to marketing and because from previous businesses i was pretty good at like facebook ads and just marketing in general and just brand development as a whole we um the, we had you know real good brand awareness and it was the next thing was to take it to the next step and the next step was to roll out like kiosk stores across um the uk like for instance, anyone listening, if you go into like Westfield in London and you got those kiosks all around the shopping centre, it was like one of those, like you know, the, the juice bars. Um, we're going to roll one of those out where we had like uh, in like a hot food section, so you know you can go there and you can get like a it was healthy, basically healthy food. Um, get a nice box of healthy food, or you could have meal prep meals that were already prepped. Then we had like desserts on there. It was, it was a ton of different things, coffees, shakes. Um, we got to go ahead because it's quite hard to get into some of these shopping centers. Well, it was at the time anyway. We got to go ahead and the back in from one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest landlords for shopping centers in the UK. We went into a management meeting with those and they said that they back us across 16 in the UK. Um, so we started off in Cardiff and St. David's and the next was going to be the Trinity in Leeds or Blue Water in London. Um, because our the thing that we lacked me and my business partner was the, the skill set for cooking. None of us are from like a cooking background and I couldn't think of anything worse. Um, so we started having, it was like a revolving door for staff. Um, it was really, really hard to retain staff in the industry. And then especially when we had the kiosk 
we had the meal prep side, the delivery, but then we were managing two units as well. It was quite hard. Um, and we ended up going to see another unit to go and buy a load of equipment off a lady. And when we got there, she was a fully qualified chef. She was doing meal prep, didn't quite kick off for her, but she'd run restaurants in the past. And then we sat down with her and her husband and he's like, you know, maybe there's something we could do together. So having spoken, speaking to my other business partner, he was like, look, this is something that we need. And for us to scale, I'd rather give up a piece of this now and have a skill set that we can fall back on, which basically underpins the whole business. Without the food, there is no business. Um, we took you on board as a shareholder. And obviously, I don't want to go too deep into it, but um, it just went terribly wrong. Um, and what seemed like uh, a really good idea with, um, I say the probability and the odds were stacked well in our favor to be very successful. We had interest very early on from um, a gentleman from Saudi Arabia that wanted to buy it off us before we even showed any real, before it was EBITDA positive, really. Um, and he was like, look, I love this idea. I'd love to take it to the Middle East and all the other stuff. So we had a lot of good interest from it. And then uh, bad JV, things went wrong, drastically wrong. And that's probably the only time where I failed and thought, I don't know how I'm going to come back right now. That's because of just the circumstance. I thought, I'll come back. But usually if something goes wrong, I'm like, whatever, I'll go again. But I felt I was so invested in it. I was way too emotionally connected to the business model. And it felt it was bad. So many questions based on what you just said. I think to to start with, going just circling back to the kind of business model, it's quite challenging, right? What you were trying to is quite ambitious, which obviously you know it, that's that's you all over, right? But you're essentially trying to do, from what I get, right, delivery a delivery model, and then you were tacking on a set of kiosks across the UK. And were you trying to scale both? Yeah, yeah. So we, we what well, the plan was to try and alter the meal prep model where they would pick up actually pick up from the kiosk and then we, we there's a few other companies at the time in the uk that also struggled to roll out the actual delivery model um just purely based on the packaging so when you deliver it to somebody unless you we, we could only do a certain radius because it was like in-person delivery because as soon as you start going national um it becomes there's a company called pro gains that i don't know if they're still around but they was massive at the time they was rolling out i think like 10,000 meals a week or something crazy. Um, but you have to have them use these certain packaging, make sure the temperature stays at a certain level. It become really, really hard and logistic, a logistical nightmare to scale nationally on that. So we was going to try and do it where they pick more up their meal prep up from the kiosk and try and partner with like local businesses, you know, like Admiral buildings, et cetera, and um, to do it that way and try and get the volume up on the actual store, the kiosk instead, because it was becoming really, really hard um, to do. But like you said, yeah, it was, it was like multiple business models in one. And we definitely, looking back, didn't have the infrastructure we needed to roll it all out as quick as we thought we was going to. Was that one of the reasons why it, it kind of ultimately didn't work? Because essentially it was potentially too ambitious in terms of its scale? Yeah, I think that was running before we could walk. I think that we need to really nail the local business model first at the Cardiff kiosk before we started looking to scale. Now, it was a double-edged sword because we brought like a consultant on board and they said that if you want to scale this, you have to do it quickly. It's the only way to do it because someone else will just come and take the model and roll their own kiosk out because the barrier to entry isn't that big. Like, you know, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't like for some 
a bigger fish, it would be easy for them to do. So I was in this mindset. That's all that stuck in my mind was, right, we need to scale quick then. We need to scale quick. And we just didn't have the right team. We was relying on a lot of like uni students to man the kiosk. Some of them didn't turn up. Um, they wasn't very competent. And then the, the business partner we brought on board was a lot older than us. So she didn't really have the energy or desire to scale it like we did. Um, and then the, we, our, our basically kitchen manager, everything landed on him. And then he started to get a bit annoyed. It just, it's just the culture changed very quickly when we tried to ramp it up. Um, and I think that that's something that I've focused heavily on now in business is maintaining a good culture in the business before you try and do anything. What would do you think you could have done differently in terms of that culture then? Because obviously it's really difficult, isn't it? When you're trying to essentially take on loads of people at once it's difficult to instill a culture because you can't essentially the culture when you're starting a business comes from your, your business partners really and that core team and then when you scale it becomes really difficult to then keep a hold of it because you know you might double your your team every few months especially if it's as well when it's rem when it's split and remote across different locations so how do you think you could have done that differently I think just streamline operations better on the one first because I was already on the next one in my head. I was like, this will just sort itself out. So, you know, and also putting a lot of the responsibility onto that other director that we brought on board, like it wasn't all her fault. You know, we thought that she had shared the same vision um, and we obviously had a different energy that like we're young. We was a lot younger so we probably expected too much and maybe it was unrealistic. Like I'm not a chef, right? I did ask the questions. Of course, we stress test the kitchen and thought, how many meals can we get through here in a day with breaks and everything else? And, you know, we, we did do that. But I suppose when you're in it is you've got to leave some room for error. Things go wrong. Orders don't turn up on time. Deliveries don't get delivered on time. So there's no space in the fridge to make new meat. It's loads of stuff that can you need to factor in so that was probably one of one of it but also working on getting a, a, a real good manager to run the kiosk side of it because we did bring someone on board from um actually one of those juice bars which was very good she was good but of course you can't work every hour in the day so there's always going to be that part of the day in that someone else changes shift and they may not be on the same wavelength so you know there's a few times where we was on the bottom floor of the shop and i used to walk across the top and look down they didn't know i was there and i used to think and they'd be sat down on their phone and there was a no phone policy on the kiosk it looks unprofessional or there'd be things that they could be doing that there's always things that you can do and it was just things like that and trying to motivate people i think we should have spent more time probably on training and and building the vision into the culture so everyone was on board with the same thing which is so important um whereas i was just trying to run thinking you know people will be fine and you know there's a revolving door of staff like i said and so staff retention is something that i focus heavily on now whereas back then i was like there'll always be more people so it's a bit of a naive mindset probably to take into it i mean recruitment's hard enough but i mean hospitality is i think it's a different level and you know all that happens in hospitality is you just shoot yourself in the foot because if people don't especially if people quit all of it and they barely run they barely um do any give any notice right so then you just like you're screwed for probably a week or so until you you know find someone else so it is one of the hardest industries for for staffing i think so what did that kind of 
the fallout of it looked like? I mean, what? how did you know that it was going wrong? And at what point did you decide, uh, you know, this is not working and cut your losses? Well, I don't know how much I can actually say, but um, I woke up one day and um, went down to the kiosk and the shopping centre manager, they come down every day after you finish your shift and ask you how much money you took on the kiosk. They, they ask all the stores in the shopping centre. And so this lady came down in the morning. And I was like, oh, hi, how are you doing? She's like, oh, can we have a chat? I said, yeah. She went, um, you haven't paid rent for two months. So I was like, huh? What do you mean? And I was like, that doesn't make sense. I said, okay, look, I'll sort it out. So at this stage, I was so focused on growth. I've, I'm in a completely different role now, I would say, in business. Um, whereas I'm very much data-driven and focused on data now. Whereas back then, I was like, I'll drive this because I've got a, very much a driver personality and you guys take care of everything else. So I start to ask questions then. I'm like, I can see the numbers on the kiosk and I can see the numbers coming in through meal prep. So in my head, I'm just working out, I'm working on rough numbers that from revenue. You know, I know roughly where our margins are at and I know where our fixed costs are and any and the variables. So, you know, I was like, I never really thought about it as a problem. And then when I started asking questions, I logged into the bank and there was quite a large sum of money transferred out the bank and there was nothing left in there. So that's where things went wrong. But in the UK, there's nothing you can do about that. Because if someone's a director of a company, it is what it is. You know, you can, you obviously you can take it, take it legal yourself and chase them personally for it. But yeah, that's where it went wrong. And at the time I'd already sunk in over 50 grand probably of my own money and a lot more of my time. And I was just like, you know, I'm not throwing more money in. You know, I, <laughs> I've thrown a load of money into this. Someone else has gone out, go in their pockets and throw some money in. So who was meant to be paying the rent? Well, it was, it was meant to be just going out on auto, but it was, um, it was someone else was obviously looking at the fine, apparently looking at the finances and looking after those. But obviously that didn't happen. It was a mess to be fair. I think, like I said, we were running before we could walk. People... Was meant to have we was meant to have roles and responsibilities. We had a shareholder agreement and everything else, but there was no meeting minutes taken when we had meetings. It was just it was just a shambles. To be fair, looking back, everything felt like a rush because we were trying to go to market so quickly with everything. And I just feel that yeah, if I going back, I would have done things so differently and just done it at a more sustainable level. And when you, you know, you saw the bank account that day and obviously, kind of realised what was going on. How did that feel? I don't know. I, I didn't even know what to think. It's just one of those things in life where you think, first of all, what's going on? Uh, you know, so first of all, I just seen the balance and I'm like, whoa, how has that happened? So I just thought it must've been a mistake, you know? Um, and then when I d just dug a little bit deeper, I just didn't know what to think, especially when the conversations that come after that, um, yeah, it just shocked me the way people reacted to situations and this, you know, you see, I think that's where you see people's true colors. I think, you know, you don't, you don't, I don't think you truly know a person until you either see how they act when they don't get what they want or how they act under pressure in a pressurized situation. And then someone's true colors come out. 
so how long did it take to sort of unravel it or like how, did you just um, immediately close it down what what kind of you know practically happened to that business given the as well you know you had a this agree you had this agreement with those 16 shopping centers yeah so, so, so luckily we didn't sign anything on those it was it was what we was going to roll out but the one that we was in you know with um like rent and rates you know was north of 60 70k a year and we just signed a three-year lease um with an 80-month break clause and i think we was like four or five months into it so obviously i had to go to the shopping center and like look, this is where we're at we had a kiosk sat there that you know just cost over 20 grand and plus more with all the fridges and everything in there and they had it and they we owed them rent so we sort of shut shop and said, look, this is just what's happened. Didn't tell them the full story. And they, they've really supported through it, to be fair. They didn't chase us for any of the other money. They allowed us to just dissolve the company instead of having to liquidate the company, which was good. Um, and they did say that we could have gone and got a kiosk, but it was just, to be fair, we should have went and got it, but I was it just, I went, I went traveling after that. I was just, <laughs> for a little bit, I was like, I need to get out of here. So, um i just it's probably still there <laughs> well, all your equipment still in there <laughs> gathering dust yeah it's probably still there unless someone else they give it to someone else i don't know <laughs> and you spoke earlier you said that actually this was the first failure and that really hit you that you weren't sure how you're going to come back say a little bit more about that i mean obviously you, you went traveling i presume that was because you needed to re-energize recharge yeah so I had a clothing brand alongside it that we was working on, but I said, like I said, most of my energy was going into this. So we, not long after, we had to travel to the one of the factories in Pakistan. So we went over to Pakistan um, to go and see the factories. It was pretty cool. We got to see like the leather fields because we was making like leather items, like bags and stuff too. And then it just gave me the buzz again. I've always been a bit of a traveler and I like to travel the world and it gave me a bit of a buzz. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to travel. And then we try to do a lot of work with some people overseas, Dubai and the US. So it was a good, um, you know, probably a good excuse to go and do some traveling after that. And just sort of, yeah, reset the mind and be like, get back into that sort of growth thinking big mindset, um, which it did. It wasn't long after I just cracked on, but it was just a bit of a shock for a couple of weeks initially. But yeah, it's because even though things I'd done previously had failed, I was never that emotionally invested into them. Um, where this one, I, I just give everything to it. Just because of the the risk reward was so big, I thought at the time. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter how far technology has moved along. You're always going to need people in one way, shape or form as of right now. And if the people aren't right, then you don't have a good business. 100%. And that emotional attachment, I mean, you said you went all in on it. It sounds like you went in all in in terms of emotion and some financial um, investment as well. When you mentioned 50K earlier. Why did you do that on this particular venture? Why did you essentially try and, I mean, you said about the reward, but surely some of the other bit some of the other ventures that you were looking at or being involved with had a similar level of reward or was this, you know, you sort of saw this as the, the, 
you know, the business to, to kind of end all businesses kind of thing. Yeah, that's how I felt. You know, when we when we had the okay for sixteen shopping centres, I, when I when you start working the numbers out and how many meals that we had to put out there for what we could have got out of it, you don't need many to live a very good life. And I thought if we could streamline this to um, and get a good process in place, kind of like McDonald's has, where you just it's very streamlined. Um, I thought you roll these out even if we only end up getting eight, not 16, and we only get 50% of where we want to get to, one, we're going to be in a position where you can pretty much live however you want because it would have thrown off very good money. Or two, it becomes a very sellable business. And you can, you know, especially if you, or, or you could even offer like a franchise model again. So for us, it was, it did feel like the the reward on it. I didn't mind what risk come with it because, the reward was potentially so big because the hardest thing was would have been is to get the landlord of the shopping centers to let us continue rolling this out. Now you think, of course, they'd want to do that because they want to make money and they want to sell space, but the business model needs to be fairly resilient and, and purposeful because they don't want people going in and out of shopping centers either. It doesn't look good. You know, they may take a, be a bit more open-minded to taking people on now because of the state of the high street, but Back then, it was thriving, you know, so it, they didn't want just anyone in there. So it was quite hard to get in there in the first place at the time. So to roll this out at mass scale, it just felt that the reward was huge if if, if it came off. Was this, uh, in terms of, like, context, in terms of time, because obviously, you know, now that thinking about this kind of model, you know, you've obviously got so many delivery yeah, uh, mechanisms and, and methods and, and brands, you know, Deliveroo and Uber Eats, etc. And it's quite a pervasive thing. And um, thinking about meal prep in a sort of different way, like I was thinking about HelloFresh. Were, were you kind of ahead of a little bit ahead of the curve a little bit? And I think, do you think that had an impact? 100%. And I think that's one thing that's happened a few times over different things I've done is you do things a little bit too early, um, unfortunately. So I do think we was a bit ahead of the curve because we used to take feedback from customers and passing and people passing by. And, you know, we used to do constant, do like free testers and, you know, whether it was like just to get them incentivized, we'd offer them like a uh, an amino acid pre-workout or some protein or taste of one of our shakes or some of the protein balls. We'd always do something to try and incentivize them to come and speak. And all the staff were incentivized on asking them what it is they're looking for. And, we say so much good feedback that like, this is exactly what this place needs. And then you don't see those people again. So it's, you know, the, the thought of it sounds great. People are like, well, I can get a healthy meal very quickly. So our slogan was fit, fast food at the time. So it was like, you know, we can get this fit, fast food. This is awesome. But then people actually committing to it was very different. So, but the numbers were pretty good at the time, but I do feel that it was, it was definitely too early, but with like you said there with the delivery model now and the way things get rolled out, um, like for instance in Dubai they do these shared kitchens, so you could have five meal prep companies all ordering from the same kitchen, so they're making different meals for each meal prep company, but they're on Deliveroo and you can order it and depend on which one you want. The same kitchen's pretty much making it, so they've really streamlined the process over there. So that could have been something we looked at down the line. Um, potentially or you never know what direction it could have gone in but yeah you've got the likes of hello fresh and they you know they've definitely moved on uh, to sort of the next stage as well because back then we was very different because we used to want have the meals actually be tasty so 
our competitors like pro games and stuff there's just like bland, no just plain chicken plate with broccoli it was just it wasn't very appetizing or nice they were just doing it because they thought if you're on meal prep you just go eat it whereas we would try and make it taste nice look nice and you know as well so we were trying to do that and there was a few others out there that did really good there was kettlebell kitchen a girl called carly in manchester she did an amazing job we went up there um, and seen what she was doing she made it fun um and there was another another lady called carly um in london that had protein house and they did pretty good too um unfortunately both of them also fell short of jvs and they both ended badly both of those businesses because of jv partners and investors too so you know is there was a good opportunity at the time but yeah i definitely feel that sometimes having first mover advantage is good and then sometimes it it can be a detriment as well sometimes depending on when it is do you think if you launched it now it would work do you know i don't i don't know um i i still think that people are in the mind that if they want to eat healthy they will but in general, when people eat out, they they tie, most of us eat for entertainment more than we eat to live. People, you know, we all do it. You've had a couple of hours of hard work and you naturally start looking for food and, you know, you want to eat something that's tasty, right? So, and if it's, if it's healthy, then great. Yeah. Um, and I think that people, when they go and tie food to them paying for the food, a lot of the time people choose probably they're not the best choice because they want to eat for entertainment first. So it might work, but it's probably a reason why I haven't seen other people roll this out at mass scale. Otherwise, why would, why wouldn't they do it? Right? Yeah, absolutely. But you're right. I think it, it, we eat for when we eat out, we're eating for reward as a treat. And obviously it, it, it all sounds like that was a slightly different market to what you were aiming for. You mentioned today a lot about, partnerships and i know obviously i don't know how much you're able to, or you know to go into what went wrong there but how do you approach partnerships differently now having had that experience so if i was to go into business with someone today then i ask all the difficult questions up front i can't really go into what what completely went wrong there we just values in the line vision was different um but now i think anyone that's going to a partnership ask for a credit check on the person. They won't like it, but just do it. You start to see, you know, how they manage money and what, what decisions that they make. Some, you know, just because they got bad, you know, bad credit doesn't mean that they're not a worthy business partner, but, you know, it depends on, you know, what, what are they working on and their spending habits and how impulsive they are. So credit check, ask every difficult question that you think could go wrong in the, the business. You're better off asking at the start. It's way easier to have the conversation when everything's optimistic and everyone's excited than it is when everything goes wrong. So I would think of all the possible ways, every point of failure that could happen in the business. If one of you are married, what happens if you die? What happens to your partner? Because you're going to want to now have a new business partner, the person's wife. How is that going to work? Um, because then what you can do is you tie all the decisions that you feel you may need to make down the line when people aren't friends anymore. If you make those decisions before it happens and you, you've already set out, outlined down a shareholder agreement, tied a shareholder protection policy to it, then, you know, you those, those, but when, if something goes wrong and you start disagreeing at the time, just pull the, pull the agreement down and say, look, this is what we've agreed. If this happens, this is where we're at. I, you know, you did X, Y, and Z. So I get to buy your shares out or, you know, 
John John died, so you know his his partner gets the payout of the insurance policy, and I keep the business. Or they're all the things that I do now. Is like you know you're all optimistic and excited at the start because it's a new thing, but yeah, that's the best. That's the easiest time to have the most diff- difficult conversations because I'm telling you now, if something goes wrong two years down the line and there's money involved, no matter how you felt at the start, that conversation is not going to go down very well. I suppose doing it up front as well, it's like everyone's got a, a clear head, as you say, and then everyone gets more emotional, firstly, an emotional attachment, but then the money also causes people's emotions to go awry as well in a good and uh, in a good and a bad way. And you talked about um, emotional attachment. Do you still get emotionally attached to businesses and business ideas? Cause obviously you're involved in, you know, looking, I suppose at a broad section of kind of businesses and in terms of like deals. Yeah. Do you ever get emotionally attached like you did then? I think, there's always some emotional attachment because you get excited, right? And so your emotions are always going to be involved. And if you feel like something's a really good idea or um, you're getting involved in a good business, then you will have some emotion attached to it. But I try and disconnect myself as much as I can emotionally. Um, and, you know, if something doesn't go quite right or a deal doesn't come off, then it does, you know, it feels horrible at the start because there is always going to be emotions involved to a certain extent. But within 24, 48 hours, time always makes things easier, regardless of what it is. So, you know, I, I, I disconnect myself very quickly now. If after something's happened, like when I was younger, it was very hard to, it's hard to accept, I think, more than anything. But yeah, now I try not to tie any emotion to it. But is that because you've had so many knocks along the way that now you're more resilient, streetwise, stronger? Yeah, definitely. I think that, until you've experienced it, you know, it's hard to, like, it's it's always sounds easier to do until it happens. You know, right now you could say, if X or Y happened, I wouldn't really care too much. I'd get over it fine. Then when it happens, all of a sudden the emotions and it goes in your belly and you're like, oh, I don't know, I'm going to get over this. And it, it feels horrible. But and in time, it does get better. But because I felt that so many times now, like that disappointment of, oh, I thought that was going to go different. I kind of know what that's going to feel like to a certain extent. So I'm just, I just take it on board easier, but yeah, I definitely feel like it's experienced. That's why like fail fast, you know, get it, get them out the way, get them out the way as quick as you can. Like if something goes well, great. If it goes wrong, just, just move on, get on to the next thing. It's just, you're just testing it. And no matter what you do, you're always testing the data, whether you're trying to lose weight in the gym, whether you're trying to make money, whether you start a new business, wherever it is, you're testing and then eventually something works. Yeah, it's, it's essentially just training, isn't it? Training yourself in some ways, um, like, you know, like being in the gym or like being, you know, boxing or something like that. It's essentially <laughs> being able to cope with the punches. And then after, you know, over time, you'll get more resilient or like, you know, training for a marathon, you've been able to cope with the longer distances. It's, I suppose, failing fast is, is like that you're able to it's sort of essentially marathon training to then be able to you know run the the 26 miles and after you know hitting the wall and you talked about how much this one really hurt and well compared to the others anyway did it knock your confidence at all did it make you you know think of think you know yeah think the sort of doubt your i don't know business acumen or skills or capabilities 
hundred percent. This is the one that did affect me. Um, I've never experienced burnout before. Like, you know, I, I always just keep going. This one, I felt like if there was ever a time that I felt burned out, I remember the one day the kids were at, uh, well, my eldest was at my mum's. Um, someone didn't turn up or two people missed shifts on the kiosk. So I was down there um, pretty much all day, the whole day. And I had been there the whole day before, plus I was working through the night. And I remember going to my mum's to pick my eldest up. And I remember sitting down and I fell asleep on the floor. And I woke up, <laughs> I was like, I couldn't believe it because I'd never really done that. <laughs> and I literally fell asleep on the floor. And I was like, mum, why didn't you tell me that I was asleep on the floor, on laminate flooring? And she's like, uh, you was tired, so I left you down there. So, um, so yeah, because I, I felt, like I said, I was very invested into it. When it happened, I, it did knock my confidence because I just thought, whoa, this is a lot harder than I expected it to be. Um, I suppose I was probably too optimistic or a little optimistic at the time that it was going to be a bit easier. So it did, it did knock my confidence. I, but I tell you what it did do, it brought me back down to a certain level where I thought I need to be better. I, I got a lot more to learn. I'm nowhere near where I need to be. So I need to go back to the drawing board and I need to go and acquire those skills needed to handle this situation differently. And because I felt like I was already doing too much in the business that you tend to do in a startup. But um, I took my eye off the data um, at the time and I would never do that again. So what do you, how do you now handle the data side of things or how do you think you should have handled it at the, at the time in that business? So if I was to go back now, I would have put everyone on an, an end of shift breakdown. So they've had to fill in an end of shift report every single day all the things that have gone right, wrong, KPIs, if we hit them, if we didn't, then now would develop into an end of week one. Then we'd have monthly management meetings. We'd have weekly management meetings initially and then move them to monthly. Um, there would have been so much more I would have done and I would have been tracking the KPIs more, like you know how many meals a day we sold, how many what we should have been doing, did anything prop up that we couldn't cope with. So if I looked at a, a report today and... Um, we was down by like 250 meals for the week. Then I, and, but then I looked in the report on say Thursday's end of shift and said the delivery didn't get delivered until 4 p.m. in the afternoon and it was meant to be 8 a.m. in the morning. Then I could be like, right, maybe that was the reason why because we didn't have enough meals on the kiosk to sell or meals to go out for meal prep. So you can you find reasons to why then all the numbers in the business tell a story. There's always a story behind the number and it's just working out what that story is. And without the data, you can't work out what the story is. And you need the people to input the data and to make sure they're inputting the right data too. So yeah, I would have done it so different. I just took my eye off the ball completely in regards to data. I was so focused on growing in the next step. I think that's a really great, just as a side note, I think it's a really great uh, sort of phrase that the data tells the story within the business. Do you think that was your biggest biggest mistake then in this? Like, Where do you see yourself as like mainly culpable? Um, my biggest mistake was trusting people and, yeah, not looking at the data. I think I still should have took a responsibility of the data regardless of what role I was in the business, even if I was driving it. I think the person driving the business essentially needs to know all the data says anyway. So, you know, if you look at a CEO, they look at probably three to five key drivers in the business, focus on them. And um, they're consistently tracking 
a couple of KPIs, but they know what the vision is of the business. They know where they're going. I knew with the vision and where we was going, but I didn't know where we was at because my eye was completely off the data, which if I'd seen the data, I would have known how far away we were. <laughs> <laughs> and you would have known, you know, you would have known your own story then really, wouldn't you? But it's because, yeah, you didn't have that, that insight. And how did you take all of those kind of lessons that you learned and then take them into sort of future businesses and success? So I, I think that one of the best skill sets you can have in business is if you go and read something like The Art of Distressed M&A or one of the turnaround books, I think that's where you develop the best skill set. Because if you have a skill set where you can turn a business around, um, you already know what strings to pull when things are already going wrong or if you want to scale. So from that, I took all the risks and all the things that went wrong and why they went wrong. And I wanted to get better at them. So some of the biggest risks in business are people. And I realized that quite quickly in that business because the people was all wrong. The team was all wrong. People was in roles that they probably shouldn't have been in. There was a couple of other people fighting for the same role or not fighting for the same role, but doing the same thing. And just, you don't, that's another thing. If you're going to joint venture with someone, they have to bring something different to the table. It's no point in you both doing the same thing. So the people was the one thing. Um, also the revenue concentration, I felt that we was, the revenue was very concentrated towards a few certain groups who's putting a lot of time and resource into like professional football and rugby teams at the time, like they was taking a lot of resource up. They was paying the small, we was making the, the least margin on those, but they was taking up a lot of time and resource and they always, they'd want very bespoke meals. So looking at that, I'd be like a lot of our revenue is concentrated towards one group of teams but what we're doing for it is just crushing our margins we should we need to just increase this side of the business and 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 split that revenue more um probably looking back it was very key man dependent especially on myself um i took on a lot of things i shouldn't have so i definitely would have and if some of it was becoming not like non-transferable knowledge but it was becoming very hard to pass stuff on because I was doing things in a certain way because I knew people wouldn't do it that way. So I probably took that away from it as well. And then I learned a lot about some of the tax and legal liabilities as well off the back of that one. So uh, I learned a lot. I took a lot of the stuff that can go wrong in business and I thought they're the things that I don't want to be involved in again if I can help it because they're the things that cause me the most stress. And what's been your sort of proudest business accomplishment since since that? You know, I, I don't know because I've, as of right now, I, I feel different towards business. I don't know whether that took a lot of emotion away from me, but the chase is always better than the kill. I used to get really, really like excited and stuff. And then when I do stuff now, I don't know, it's just underwhelming. It always is. It never feels like, it never feels the way I thought it would feel. So you hit certain milestones or I'll buy a certain business or you hit a certain metric in business. I don't know. It just never feels the way you thought it would feel. So since then, I haven't really, I don't know, give myself that pat on the back on anything I've really done. I don't know why it's, it's strange, but I don't feel like that anymore. And I'm hoping <clears throat> I'm still chasing for it. That dopamine hit, but it just lasts. It doesn't last very long. So I just don't know. You celebrate for, the moment and then it's gone and then you're on to the next thing. And I, I don't know whether it's just because you're very ambitious mindset 
Um, I don't know. We'll see. As of right now, there hasn't really been a time where I felt like super proud. I'm just trying to wonder about that and how to respond. It's sort of so many things were going through my mind. Is that, I mean, are you not celebrating the wins? I mean, it sounds like you kind of are or recognizing the wins or the successes or the milestones, or have you completely detached yourself from those milestones and those successes that you're just kind of numb to them now? And then you're not feeling anything, whether that's good or bad. Um, I probably, I'm probably not celebrating the wins that I should, um, which is a bit funny because some of the people that I work with and people like even friends, the ones that maybe go for a situation where they start struggling with self-belief, the first thing I say is count all your small wins, which anything is make you know you got to count the small wins as well as you do the big ones. But yeah, I've just disconnected myself from all of it. Like I, in a way, I, I'm I don't want to lose that mindset. But I also feel that it's nice to feel like proud of what you've done. But um, I just feel like I like winning to just become normal. So when you go into something, you naturally feel like I'm going into this to win. And that's just the way it is. So winning just becomes normal. So that's probably why I am i don't do it. And I always think there's always a next level up. And I just want to see how far I can take it. And I may change in five years' time. I may get to a stage where I'm like, I'm cool, feel good. could be in a year, it could be 10 years, or it could be never. But as of right now, I feel like I've disconnected myself from the celebration, which I don't know whether that's good or bad. Is it dangerous to essentially never have that recognition of what you've achieved? And then you also just sort of said that you just kind of keep going. So does that mean you never get to where you want to be or you never actually, if you're just setting goals constantly and then just smashing through them, where does it stop? Where does it, you know, where does it end? Is that dangerous? I totally agree. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think that, yeah, it could be dangerous. You know, it, it could be like looking back when I was a kid, I used to be like, I used to get super excited if something happened. So you'd always want to call someone. So you call a friend or I call a family member or I call someone to be like, oh, this has just happened. If something happens now, I just don't tell anyone. And then someone will bring it up and I'm like, oh, yeah, that happened. They're like, why didn't you tell us that? So that does maybe it is dangerous because I'm just like, yeah, that happened. But I just carried on. And so, yeah, I don't know. Probably, it probably is. It probably is good because I think that like gratitude, I'm, I'm big on gratitude. And I'm, and I'm very grateful for life and, and what's around me and stuff. But I probably maybe it's good to share gratitude with others as well, maybe maybe not just yourself. So yeah, maybe it's dangerous. I have to work on it. <laughs> and was any of that to do with, you know, this, this failure did, I mean, you talked about not telling people about your wins. Did you tell anyone at the time and you, you know, your friends and family about this, you know, incident and what had happened? Not a full story, really. Um, I was quite embarrassed at the time. You know, I had this big idea. Everyone was like, well, you, you know, this, this looks good. And, it was quite embarrassing that it, for me at the time to be like, how did that not work? So I didn't really want to tell people the full story. Um, so yeah, I, I shared it with some, but not like the full, full story because there was just loads of moving parts to it. So, and it went on for ages, but yeah, probably maybe it was from that time because sort of, I sort of just stopped. So have you, because obviously you spoke at the, Mm. You spoke at the beginning of, of being 
not fear, scared of failure. And then obviously you had that big fail. And now you're talking about not telling anyone about anything that's going on. I'm just wondering if now there is a sort of slight fear, because if you don't tell anyone, no one's going to then hold you to account that if you've not achieved it or, or not. So I'm just wondering if, if, if it's kind of, there is a slight, I don't know, I don't want to call I don't want to call it fear because it's a very strong word, but you know, sense of reticence about accomplishments and setting big goals and then sh sharing them with others because, I mean, you said it yourself, embarrassment. Yeah, maybe. Um, well, I don't think that I'm scared to fail. I just feel that, like this, you know, the the scoreboard tells the true story. So I feel like there's a lot of people that talk like a big game, isn't it? And we can all talk a big game. We're all any of us can really, and say all the things we're gonna do. I just like to just do them, and then you know the scoreboard doesn't lie. It is what it is. Um, so if the scoreboard's not looking good, then I'm clearly not doing something right. If it's looking good, then I am doing something right. And I think that ultimately when you have a family, it always comes down to they're the most important thing. So realistically, you know, my, my children are the most important thing as long as I'm working towards my overall goal, I suppose, for them and where I want to go. But yeah, it's, um, it probably is, it isn't going to be, isn't a bad thing though that I tell people the successes and the failures, you know, the, I probably talk more about my failures and successes, really, you know, I, where, I don't know, I don't really tend to be like, wow, I've just did this or just closed this deal. But for my failures, I, I do, because I feel that people can learn from failures. Like when, when you've won, yes, people want to know what it took you to get there, but usually what's taking you to get there is a lot of failures. So you're going to take a lot more value from someone's failures than you are from their wins, in my opinion, because I'd rather know how not to do it because you you jump over a few stones that you, you probably would have stood on. Whereas if, if someone says, I've won, and I'm like, what did you do to win? And they say, well, I was just very disciplined and consistent. I did this, this, and this. I woke up at this time every day. I worked this many hours a day. And it, it, usually the way someone won is very boring. That's But the failure has a story behind it. And it becomes, it's actually more fun to listen to because you start to realize, oh, okay, that's where you started to go wrong. Ah, right, okay, I don't want to do that. Whereas when someone won, you know, there's always, I tend to say, I know people say, make your own luck. There's always some sort of luck involved and some timing that you probably didn't anticipate that went right for you along the way, but because you stay consistent and disciplined for so long. But usually discipline and consistency sounds very boring to somebody, you know, because everyone wants the secret hack, don't they? Everyone's looking for that thing that makes the difference when realistically, they're the two things that make the difference, discipline and consistency, the two things that people avoid. Yeah, it's that habit thing we were talking about earlier, right? It's, it's those habits and consistency and uh, those marginal gains. Yeah. And it's interesting, I, I completely agree, obviously, and, that, and that's obviously why we're here and, you know, on this podcast is because I, I, I you know, I'm an absolute believer in, in sort of the, you can learn more from failure than you can from success. And I think the, the problem is with success stories is that there is a bias towards um, that 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 success, and so you're not you're here. You're only hearing the stories of success. You're not hearing the stories of of, of failure, and there's a bias towards those. So it's sort of um, survivor bias, essentially. And yeah, I think as you said, there is more to more to learn from the things that um, people don't do or, or kind of done done wrong. Um, because you know also that people that are successful have had failures in 
that they might not actually talk about uh, as well. What do you or what did you learn from yourself at that lowest point? I mean, you talked about going away, traveling, and obviously embarrassment are the words you've used today. Was there anything that you, yeah, that you kind of learned about yourself? I mean, you obviously said how self-aware you were, but was there anything new that came up during those dark times, during those most difficult moments? I probably realized that I weren't as good as I thought I was. That was the biggest thing. I thought I was better than I was at business and at life. And I think that was a rude awakening for me to be like, I found, I feel definitely I'm a quite a streetwise person. So to, to, to have somebody to put the trust into somebody and to allow that to happen. That's the way I looked at it. I thought I'm definitely not as good as I thought I was. So it was back to the drawing board for me to improve on things that I obviously weren't good at. Um, or I wasn't as good at um, as I should be. So that was the biggest thing for me is look at myself and be like, you need to be better. If you want to go and play at that level, you need to be better. Because up to then I had a lot of like smaller wins, which, you know, playing locally in the game, locally in business, it's not hard to stand out. I don't think if you work hard, but when you try and take it to that next level and you want to go national and you want to deal with, hedge funds because that's who we was dealing with and people like that you've got to be better and you've got to do things that you know you probably don't want to do uh, so that was the biggest awakening for me was right now you've got to go to work and what did you change there to be you know it's about to be better knowledge i went out there and learned as much as i could i asked as many questions as i could i realized that i think probably when i was younger i was a lot more arrogant as well as in like i felt that my ego was just I probably thought I couldn't learn off certain people. And I'll tell you something now, like whether they're younger or older than you, people experience life differently and they go through different experiences. So at the end of the day, you're going to learn from everyone first and foremost. So never disregard somebody because they're younger or because they're older um, or wherever they're from, wherever background they're from. People experience things differently and they have different takes on it. That's what makes us people and individuals. So I think that I learned a lot more. And then I also went and spoke to people that were playing at that game. And I just, I absorbed knowledge. And they're the people I discussed the failure with because I weren't in, as embarrassed to them because they was where I needed to get to and I didn't do it right. And I wanted to learn from them. I, at, at that point, your ego needs to go out the window and you need to be teachable. You need to be able to, yeah, coachable uh, just overall. So I started reading a lot. Um, a lot, as you can see behind me, is a lot of books. I, I just wanted to read a lot, a lot of leadership books, a lot of um, just things overall, I think. Um, and that's why I started diving into the, the just M&A as a whole. I start, when I started to look through different books on business, that's when I seen The Art of Distressed M&A. Um, and you, I started to realize that, you know, okay, there's a different world now. But then, you know, it was important at the time not to get into too chase too many shiny objects because books tell a lot of stories and they give you a lot of ideas. But um, yeah, I just overall just went out there and I just become a sponge and I still am today. I, you know, I think you should always be a sponge. So what advice would you give to listeners who might have experienced a setback um, in their business? You're always going to get them. Success and failure go hand in hand. You're not going to get one without the other. And it's just another day. You're going to have setbacks. There's no way around them. I don't care how much you mitigate the risk. There is no way to completely 
remove setbacks from the journey. And if you want to, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to delve into that world and you want to root the rewards, then I would just say get used to it. But learn fast, um, cut your losses very quick, and move on. And always find the person that's doing better than you or or doing the thing you want to do better than you. Um, definitely use the who not how method. Go and find the people that can do it that are better. Don't think you can do everything. But when it comes to setbacks, I don't think there's a way around them. I just think that you need to become very, very much more resilient towards them. And that's only going to come once you have a couple. But it's never the end of the world. If you have to make a big decision, allow 24 hours. I guarantee you'll make a different one or you'll look at the the, the thing, the decision you're making very differently in a 24-hour period because things get better with time. No matter how bad it feels today, no matter if the world feels like it's ending, dance through the storm because I guarantee in three months, six months, and 12 months' time, that's going to feel completely different to, to, to the point where it just becomes obsolete. What advice would you give to new entrepreneurs about the fear of failure? I mean, obviously, you're, you mentioned about you know the fact that you haven't been scared of, of failing, but obviously, there'll be people out there that are of a different mindset. So what advice would you give to them? So I would say, look, just look at the, the best that has ever done it. Just go and Google the best that's ever done it and then Google their failures and every single one of them has got countless failures attached to them. So it's no different to what you're going to go through. You know, some of the greatest to ever do this has failed bigger than you can ever imagine, bigger than will ever fail, you know, most likely. Um, so if they can do it, they can weather the storm and they become who they become, then just just keep on, keep doing it. And I think that, yeah, you have to form a discipline and you have to be consistent, but everyone reacts differently to situations and everyone's wired differently. So, you know, if you feel that listening to certain affirmations or listening to success stories motivates you before and that's what gets you going, go and do it. If you feel that certain people need to be drag you out of bed in the morning and whatever, just do it, you know. But I think a lot of it is just taking a common sense approach. Most people, logic goes out the, the window with most people when emotions get involved. So, I think uh, read uh, well. Actually, the best piece of advice before I waffle on, um, go and read as many books or listen to as many videos on YouTube on emotional um, IQ as you can. Literally as many as you can. If you can control your emotions, everything becomes easier. That's what I would say. If I could go back now, and the first book I was given was Rich Dad Poor Dad, which was a great book, and I'm 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 really thankful I read that at such a young age, but. If I could go back now, that made me want to go and read more about that sort of thing. That's, But I think if someone gave me a book on emotional intelligence, I probably would have found it boring at the time. But if you can get skilled on that and develop a real good self-awareness, everything becomes easier anyway. Because if you fail then and you're very self-aware, you understand, like, look, this has happened to me. There's no way around it. I, can't, I can only kick up so much of a fuss because what's happened's happened. I've got to come back from it. That's what I would say. Any particular books on emotional intelligence? There's obviously that famous book on emotional intelligence that I can't remember the name of, but I think it's actually is called Emotional Intelligence. But any other particular ones? Or that's the one I would just read. That it's, it is called Emotional Intelligence. Um, let me think if there's any others here. So if you want to, if you want to read more emotional intelligence, I'll talk into the mic. Um, I would probably look more into. Um, the behaviors of individuals, like obviously emotional intelligence is, is tied to that. But if you want to link it to finance, if you look at the 
behavioral finance. That's where I picked most of my stuff up from was looking at the different biases. So whether you got, you know, confirmation bias, you know, you have um what this 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 literally if you look at if you go into biases and look at cognitive dissonance and different biases and behaviors in finance, that's where you'll learn the most because then you're tying it to the thing that you like because you can have some sort of finance related to anything you do entrepreneurial. So if you can tie that, I actually I actually have a real good podcast on this because I had a guest on there and we talked for like over an hour just about this. And it really shows you how people react to situations. Um, and you learn a lot about yourself when you start looking at what, what, where your biases lie. I'll put the link to your podcast in or that episode in, in the show notes, definitely. So just kind of wrapping up now, Dee, and if you could go back in time and erase that failure, that business failure that affected you so much from happening, would you do that? No, definitely not. I learned a lot from it. Anything to add to that? No, I think that a lot of the things that I do now, probably I would, I definitely wouldn't have as probably my business acumen wouldn't be where where it is now because there's only so much you can teach. I think when it comes to business, most of the things you're going to learn, you're going to learn from experience. There's going to be some things that, you know, an example I usually use is if someone comes to you and says, oh, look, I'm half a million um, in debt with HMRC, you know, you, you know, you, people don't know that you can call them up and, you know, you can negotiate terms and defer those payments over a period of time. But if I come up to you randomly and said that, you'd be like, why are you telling me this? Because no one's going to teach that experience until you've gone through it. It's just a weird thing to tell someone. But there's loads of things in business that you mentioned. And the same with property, right? You go into things and be like, oh, you know, if you buy multiple houses together, you can get multiple dwellings relief. And most of it would be like, why are you telling me this for? But it's because you an experience that you have to go through to to learn, you know. So I th- that's the thing for me. If I didn't go through that experience and that failure and that embarrassment, there's a lot I wouldn't have learned. Maybe I would have now, because you're going to pay for it one way or another. You go, there's always a price to pay, and I, I'm glad that I paid it then, no matter how horrible it felt at the time. Um, I'm glad I did it. And I may have, I probably will have bigger failures down the line. You know, they, I'm, it is where it is. I'm not worried about them. Um, it's just how you handle them is how you react to the situation. Amazing. So I've got a quick fire round to end. So these are short questions and it's just, you know, shorter answers you want to kind of give. So failure is key. What's your life's mission? Become the best version of myself. Nice. What's one piece of advice that you would want to give on your deathbed? I'd probably say just don't don't create limitations for yourself and put up false walls. It's probably there's a lot of deep deeper I could go into that, but um, I feel that most people go through life and create false limitations. But um, I, for my kids, if hopefully they would be there on that day, I wouldn't want them to feel that that certain things limit them. I just you know, it's just everyone everyone's pretty much especially in the uk us australia if you live in a developed nation you now everyone's got access to pretty much the same information so it's what you do with it we can deep dive into into another podcast on that one um if you could be immortal would you take it probably yeah yeah why like i i I, obviously i'm fascinated on what happens when we're gone but um because that's so unknown until it happens I know where it feels like to be here. So um, I probably the biggest, um, my biggest 
fear probably on that is not being able to see the kids grow up and see where they end up being. So if I got a chance to still be around and see that, then I'm going to take that any day. <laughs> What's one surprising fact that not many people know about you? I'm an introvert because I do events and um, and I speak a lot and stuff. People think I'm very much an extrovert, but now I'm I'm an extrovert around people that I like. Um, you know, I, I like spending a lot of time on my own. Um, some people may know that some people don't, but yeah, I'm, uh, as much as I like networking and all that type of stuff, I love my own company and I like being alone. And sometimes I'm in an environment for too long. I just want to get out of there. <laughs> that is surprising to me. So last question, um, who can you recommend as a guest that you think would be brilliant for this podcast? So if you want absolute value, and I think that on the topic that you're talking about, I think the best guest you could possibly get is Craig Hill. He's my business partner. Um, he's actually considering writing a book called There's Value in Failure. He's very much in tune with behaviors. He's studied psychology. He studied behavioral finance. He's a wizard. So if I was going to recommend anyone for pure value for your listeners, it would be him. He's the guy I mentioned I, I interviewed on the podcast. Um so that him for that and for just in general for probably the circle that we're in there's a guy called um riz he's a forex trader um very consistent and good i like the stuff he posts and i feel that it'd be good to know a little bit about more about his story and from that perspective as well because trading has got a lot of emotion tied to it and you probably fail on a daily basis so and because he's very good at it, it, I think it'd be cool to listen to to his perspective on this. Great. Amazing recommendations. So thank you. So, Dee, where can people find you and connect with you? Um, Instagram's a good place. It's D underscore Ludlow on Instagram. And just type in D Ludlow on YouTube. Got quite a bit of YouTube content as well. But in general, of all social medias, is the same name. So just D Ludlow. Amazing. Well, um, thank you so much for today and, and giving so much of a kind of honest perspective on your kind of journey today and all of those setbacks. And I think, you know, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So um, I'm sure everyone will be getting a lot of value from today. Cheers. Really appreciate your time, mate. Um, I'm glad we made it happen. And um, some awesome questions as well. That was uh, very different to any podcast I've ever been on. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be good. Uh, looking forward to it releasing. 100%. So, yeah, thanks again, Dee. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Fail. Really hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Please do subscribe to the show and leave us a review. It really does help us to grow and to reach more people. Do follow us on social media too. We're at Jeswood on Instagram and at Beyond the Fail on YouTube and also on Linktree. Thanks again and see you soon.